Hey everyone, before we kick this episode off, I urge everyone listening to like and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you may get your podcast from. So if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating, or also subscribe to us on Spotify. And I urge all of our listeners to head to our website, and you can get more than just our podcast from there. We have news stories all the time there, we have feature articles there, so head to tnpmedia.au. That's tnpmedia.au. All right, without further ado, we'll get stuck into the podcast. Talk and Power, your motorsport and motoring radio show. Now on 88.5 FM, the valley comes alive. And podcasting across iTunes and talkandpower.com.au. All right, welcome to another episode of the Talking Power Podcast. It is episode 173, and if you're watching this one, I hope you are. And if you are listening to us, I urge you to watch this one as well on our YouTube channel. I have with us, we've never had a Monster Jam driver before, but all the way from the United States, Bryce Kinney. Bryce, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You are the pilot of the Great Clips Mohawk Warrior. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm super excited. I love the podcast. I think you do an amazing job at the uh, on the show and just putting this stuff together. And and maybe I don't know if you're referring to people watching it because I'm you know a 35-year-old guy with a mohawk. I don't know if that's why you're recommending they get on YouTube, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is my life. I go through airports every weekend with people looking at me thinking I've got daddy issues or something like that. <laughs> hey, don't, don't stress about it too much. We, we, the fans of monster jam in Australia will understand, understand that and understand you. If you can see on the camera here, I, my kids, uh, they nice. still do actually love monster jam and they, when they came to Australia quite a few years ago, uh, we collected quite a few of the models. So that was that was one of them from back in 2015, <laughs> actually. We'll talk I about that it. in a minute. Yeah. One of the things, we, we, we started the podcast off by saying you're the driver of the Great Clips Mohawk Warrior in the Monster Jam, but also you're now author. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about the book a bit later, but Geared for Life, Making the Shift into Your Full Potential, um, just briefly give us a quick brief on that. We'll get into the monster trucks now, but just give us a quick brief on the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that my job is, you know, backflipping a, uh, I always say 12,000 pounds. I know that you guys are, what is that? So 5,400 kilograms or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Something spot on, spot on. Yep. There you go. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's an amazing thing that, that we've been able to do over the last several years, but I never thought I would write a book. And, mm. um, it, you know, when I came down to it, I said, I really don't believe that there's a secret to life. And if there is, I'm not qualified to share it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I do believe that there are gears to life. Mm -hmm. And I believe that all of us as individuals, if we know what gear we have available to us and what our gears are, are our foundational beliefs, like what Mm -hmm. we really believe, what we think is truth, um, then, uh, then those beliefs guide our actions and that's what shapes our life. And so uh, geared for life. I share my seven personal gears, my gears that I have used along the way that I constantly shift in and out of at the right time. Mm. And, uh, and that's, what's enabled me to, you know, live this crazy life of being a professional driver, setting Guinness world records, um, and trying to be the best dad I can at the same time. 
Mm. Well, we'll talk about your record soon because there's quite a few of them. But for those listeners that haven't heard of of Monster Jam, um, explain to us the world of Monster Jam and in particular Feld Entertainment, the show that they bring around the world. Man, it's amazing when you think about what Feld Entertainment has done. And if anyone knows a couple of these different live shows, so they the only organization that sells more live event tickets than Feld Entertainment does is the National Football League here in the mm-hmm. States. Um, and we just, it, it's it's outrageous when I look at what they're able to pull off between the circus and Disney on Ice and Supercross and Monster Jam. All that is housed under the same umbrella, which is Feld Entertainment. Uh, it's the largest motorsports fleet in the world. So Mm -hmm. they have 55 trucks, monster jam trucks that they take all over the world right now. They just finished up their Australian tour. Uh, they'll do, I want to say this next year, they will be in almost 20 countries and they'll do, they'll perform over 500 events. And so, you know, I stay primarily here in the States because my sponsor, great clips is a, a well-known and large haircut organization hair salon um and they are they're only in north america so you know it doesn't make sense for them to pay to you know uh send their their mohawk warrior truck over to beijing yeah (laughs) so but it's pretty amazing what you know how monster jam really started with humble beginnings back in the 80s with uh you know bob chandler and bigfoot just throwing big tires on a on a truck in his backyard and then dennis anderson and gravedigger kind of coming up and 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 starting to the freestyle competition out of desperation he was at an event he couldn't get home he he mm. could not get home he went to the the track owner and that's when they used to just do racing where they would you know run over cars and stuff and hit a couple jumps and he went to the track owner and he said, look, I do not have money to get home. Let me go out there and just do something in the truck after everything's wrapped up so I can sell the rest of my T-shirts, mm. so I can sell the rest of my merch. And he goes out there and he thought that he would hit one or two jumps and the truck would break. And he and he, uh, But he didn't. 60 seconds in, he couldn't believe the truck was still together and he kept hitting it and the smoke was coming off the motor. And, and like 90 seconds in, it finally let go and the crowd went ballistic. And so, yeah. and he definitely sold the rest of his t-shirts. And so it really was just a way for him to keep chasing his dream. And that is the, that is the crowning jewel of monster jam. Now is the freestyle competition where, you know, each driver gets two minutes to go out and just do whatever we want to do on the track. And that's where you get the huge air and the big crashes and all the backflips. And, uh, and so the, there's a lot of history to the sport and I'm just so honored that now I get to, for the last eight years, I've gotten to drive a, a monster jam truck for a living is pretty surreal. Yeah. The Anderson family really have cemented their place in, in the monster truck jam history, haven't they? Cause oh, yeah. everyone remembers, everyone remembers Bigfoot, but Bigfoot um, was the kind of the traditional truck, wasn't it? Engine out front and, uh, you know, yeah. it was more of that traditional. I remember Bigfoot actually came to Perth in 1989 from memory. I went to that. I was only a kid. But then we saw the evolution, like Gravedigger, the evolution, the motor came more into a central position of the truck and mm-hmm. and slightly lower as well. And they became more um, acrobatic, let's put it that way, didn't they? Ah, that's a great, that's a great <laughs> word to use for it because I've never heard that word used for a Monster Jam truck and it's spot on. It's perfect, Nick. Uh, acrobatic, yeah. Um, it, it is because when you think about what the Andersons have done, 
And, you know, I was just texting Adam Anderson, who's Dennis mm -hmm. Anderson's son, uh, before I started this podcast, not about the podcast, but um, I think he was making fun of me about something. Anyway, we've got a good friendship. <laughs> and as we were, uh, as I've come along with this, it's been a David versus Goliath situation. And what I mean by that is I love racing Gravedigger. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I also, I, I know that my win loss record is still tilted in Adam's favor as of yep. this podcast, <laughs> but I've, I've gotten some really good wins against him. And in fact, there for a long time, I had eight crashes in my racing career. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just in, in the racing competition, I had eight crashes in racing and every single one of those was against Adam in great yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Just because when you line up against him, you know, you line up against that black and green wrecking machine, as we call it, you, mm. you're going to give them your best and it's out yeah. of respect. It's out of respect yeah. because you know that it's going to feel real good if you beat them. And so you're, you're going to, you know, keep the throttle pinned to the floor, even if the truck's a little upset. And a lot of, a lot of my crashes were uh, on the other end of the finish line as well, just because you're trying to, you're trying to beat one of the best to ever do it. But yeah. I do call them Monster Jam royalty, uh, mm -hmm. the Anderson family, uh, but they're, it's amazing. Then Ryan Anderson, People have seen Son of a Digger uh, mm -hmm. because he's had probably more viral videos go out across the world than any of us. Uh, but Ryan Anderson has just, man, he's, I call him the cheat code to the video game of yep. real life Monster Jam because what he does in a truck shouldn't be done. I mean, mm -hmm. we're out there defying physics and then I'll see him go and do something new and try some new trick, Nick. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my gosh, now that's the new standard. How yeah. am I going to start doing that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's pretty yeah. cool and and it's it's a testament to just the evolution of the sport in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, now definitely. Talking about the sport then itself, the format, I, I I like to talk about the pit party. I know when we went in 2000, sorry, I bought some more props tonight, but when we went in 2015, yeah. my kids were big fans of Scott Butine, oh. the the uh, Hot Wheels yes. the Hot Wheels truck. So they made that There's oh, actually a, I love it. <laughs> There's a max. Oh, man, there's a max. Cool. There's a max D somewhere. I, I don't know where that one's gone. That one was. Uh, that was my youngest son. It was Max D. You rocked the earth in Perth. But yeah, that's. <laughs> but that's quite common practice, isn't it? Really, at a Monster Jam truck, everyone, the kids yeah. bring their signs. So just explain to our listeners: you have the pit party beforehand. Mm -hmm. Then traditionally, you'll kick off with a racing competition, and then the freestyle competition as well. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Cause when I go into a normal city, I'll fly in on Thursday and what's so astounding is the truck is all set up and ready to go for the weekend, mm -hmm. you know, and then I didn't have to fix it back in drag racing, which I is what I came up in professional drag racing. You know, I was with the car all week and I was in the rig and going, you know, uh, driving miles all weekend, getting there, setting up the tent, setting up the track, setting up the truck or the, uh, the, the dragster. And, you know, doing all that, tearing it up. And then it was still on me to fix it that week, that next week. Yeah. And so it's amazing to me. It, it it never goes over my head when I get to an event and the truck is sitting there ready to go. Mm. Um, that's yeah. that in and of itself. I pinch myself every single weekend. But uh, Friday, we usually get there and do a lot of media. And we do usually one quick kind of race pass. And mm. it's kind of a shakedown pass just to make sure everything did get fixed and feels good. Uh, and then Saturday, we start off with a pit party, and it's a three-and-a-half-hour-long pit party, uh, typically. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fans can come in and meet the drivers and see the trucks up close. And uh, a lot of times, we'll do it on the floor of an event. Uh, yep. Sometimes it's out in the parking lot of a stadium, depending on what the stadium wants us to do. But you know, anytime the, the fans get to go and walk the track as well, and they, they stand next to these nine-foot-tall 
jumps and they're like, mm. oh my gosh, like that's what this guy's about to jump this monster yeah. jam truck off of. Uh, that's really cool. But for three and a half hours, they bring all sorts of memorabilia, just like that sign that your son made. And, um, you know, we, we drivers, we love signing stuff, not because mm. it, it strokes our ego, but because we know that motorsports, the, unfortunately the, the longer motorsports is, is around, it seems like it's harder to access drivers and that yeah. should be the opposite, mm, you know? Yeah. I, and I, I've heard some of these formula one guys complain and IndyCar guys complain mm. that they're signing too many autographs. And I laugh about that because I think a typical NASCAR driver, from what I hear, they'll sign about 3000 autographs a year. Yeah. And I'm like, I've signed 3000 items in a weekend, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, uh, and again, it's not, I don't, I'm not better than that NASCAR driver or anything. Hey, he's the one that's figured out how to monetize his autograph. I have not, but bottom line, it's all about those fans having an amazing experience. Mm. And, yeah. and I think that's what monster jam does better than any other motorsport and probably any other entertainment group mm. in the world is they understand how to give the fans a full experience. And when I say a full experience, I think the best memories are and that's why this is why motorsports is so powerful. But the best memories we make are when all five of our natural senses are impacted. Yeah. You know, so if you go to a movie, you're just seeing it and hearing it. Mm. Maybe you're feeling some loud music every once in a while, but that might be it. Yeah. You know, the best memories are when you see it, hear it, feel it, you know, uh, smell it, taste it. And, and it, it's just, it assaults all five of your senses. Well, that's what motorsports does. Maybe you mm. don't taste, uh, the car, but you're, you're, you know, you're, you're watching a monster jam truck do something crazy. You're hearing it. You're, you're, you're feeling it, the, the, the rumble in your seat. Um, and you're doing all that while you're, uh, you know, smelling the dirt out there and you're, yeah. you're eating cotton candy. You yeah. know, those are why the memories are so deep. And so we love the pit party and then we get going into racing and that's our heads up competition. It's just me versus another truck. Mm. Um, and you win, you move on. Uh, and then we actually started a skills competition. And yep. this is where the technical side of Monster Jam is really picked up because, yeah, it's 5,400 kilograms, but uh, but we're balancing that truck up on its nose for mm. 20 plus seconds and the crowd's going crazy or we're doing bicycles. We're doing things that you should do on a dirt bike or taking yep. a massive 12 foot tall truck and going out there and, and uh, creating chaos with that in the skills competition. But that's what's elevated the skill sets of the the drivers. And then it's kind of bleeding into freestyle competition. But ultimately, Nick, as you know, the freestyle competition is that crowning jewel. Yeah. And that's where all the craziest stuff happens. That's where all the viral content goes mm -hmm. on as well. And where the drivers can really push the limits on the truck yeah. and where the fans just, you know, they're on the edge of their seats or they're standing up clapping and yelling their faces off. Cause that's where all the, all the big time carnage happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk us talk of freestyle then. Well, I'm going to give the dimensions of a standard truck. So, um, each truck weighs 5.5 ton, uh, 3.2 meters tall, 3.8 meters wide, and 5.2 meters long. So they're not they're not really small, obviously. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so talk us through your. I know you you are quite good at it, and there's a number of drivers that are really good at it. The backflip. You stack up. There's two. Mm. So we need to probably set it up for our listeners. But there's generally, I think it's two C containers stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Or, yeah. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then basically. There's a there's a there's a technique to this. Obviously, I've heard you speak mm -hmm. about the technique. I've watched your video where you talk ah. about the technique. But talk our listeners through actually doing the backflip. 
Yeah. I, I love doing backflips. Um, if I ever get anxious about the results uh, in terms of like a, from a safety standpoint, it's the backflip as well. So mm-hmm. I always tend to over rotate on a flip yep. because under rotating I, you know, I watched a guy break his neck, uh, uh, and under rotating the truck. And so it's always kind of stuck in my mind. That's why I always tend to over anytime I've got a plan. And as soon as I'm approaching that container, it goes out the window and I'd give it a little bit extra <laughs> throttle, <laughs> so, but it's not hard to get the truck to rotate. Uh, what is hard is to land it and, and make sure that the truck is in one piece afterwards. Mm. But it's, it's pretty amazing how consistent now we're making the boxes. It used to be just dumpsters and the yep. dumpsters used to collapse. And after, you know, three or four trucks hit the dumpster, it was no good anymore. It wasn't given mm-hmm. the same, it didn't have the same rigidity to it to be able yep. to get the truck to, to rotate backwards. But yeah, I, I say there's really three steps to a great backflip. You, you turn the corner and you, you pick a focal point on that container and, uh, and it could be as big around as a quarter, but you're going to watch that all the way in as you approach. And then as soon as those front tires touch the container, you want to give it all the throttle you got. And that's okay. what enables the truck to kind of bounce off of you're getting the shocks to kind of expand out and kind of, you know, snap the, the front end of the truck backwards for you. Uh, but what, but people haven't put themselves in the driver's seat before imagine hitting a container and you know, the last thing you see that's upright uh, is, are the fans. And then all of a sudden, once you hit the container, the fans start to go upside down. You see the, you see the stadium lights or the sky, if it's outdoor, uh, you see the, the bottom of the stadium. And then all of a sudden the fans are coming back into your peripheral or back into your view, uh, very quickly. And they're upside down. Um, and then you're trying to get the, you're trying, you're watching for the dirt to come back in your field of view. Right. So that's where all of a sudden in the truck, the second half of the flip is a lot slower than the first half. Hmm. And we actually learned this uh from the dirt bike guys where you know you see them kind of tap the brakes midair to kind of get the easier to get the front of the bike to come down and uh or they kind of give that throttle that 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 uh whiskey throttle we call it uh you know if they want the front end of the truck to come up we do the same things with these giant machines and so if i if i'm in the middle of a backflip and i like the rotation i'm trying to slow it down i actually hit the brake it slows the the centrical force of those those giant tires it slows all that down, which actually slows down the rotation to allow me to kind of land it on all fours. And so that third step, I always say it's like for step number one, pick your focal point. Step number two, fully commit, right? All the throttle you got as soon as it, the front tires touch the container. Step number three is find your bearings. So, you know, picking out that spot and, and realizing where you are, not being lost. And then after you land it, it's kind of a bonus step, but it's fan the flame, right? It's yep. it's uh, get excited with the fans, celebrate those moments and yeah. because the fans go crazy after a backflip. And sometimes like the driver needs to slow down long enough to go, I just backflipped that truck over there. That's incredible. What a moment. What a memory for me, not just yeah. even the fans, but you celebrate those moments with the fans. So it's technically, I guess, uh, four steps to a really great Monster Jam backflip. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it's it. It's, when I watched your video about how you explain how you did that, it was I took I never took into consideration the the centrifugal forces of the tires rotating in in, in essence with when it's upside down. So you really do. It's there is a bit of a science to it, like stopping that stopping that centrifugal forces by applying the brake and then yeah, allowing and, and then bringing that when it comes back down. Also, getting your bearings as well. It's quite quite an art, isn't it? 
It is. And we've, we've learned a lot. You know, if you, if someone watches a, a really good monster jam freestyle, they'll see us tapping the brakes and, and increasing tire speed midair almost every single jump. Yep. And so it's part of the sport that you're right. I mean, it's, it's a learned thing. Uh, drivers having to, you know, I had to learn big time just how to pull a truck out of the landing mm-hmm. and, and giving it throttle at the right time. Cause if you're landing on the throttle, you're obliterating planetaries and gears in the, yep. in the corners and all that stuff. And, and so my world was really all motors. It wasn't the drivetrain. It was the powertrain. Mm-hmm. And, and I know the powertrain, right? I can hear it. I can feel it. And I can send my crew guy back there and say, Hey, you know, timing's off two degrees. Just check, put a timing light on it real quick. Yep. And, and a lot of times I'm right. And so things like that, that's, that's great. But I, I prop myself up, make myself sound real cool right there, Nick. But I was a, travesty when it came to the drivetrain and mm-hmm. so it took me a couple of years until i could even pinpoint what corner was letting go or something was off and then yep. you know i was three years into the sport having to come over the the radio to my crew guy saying hey buddy i think the front left corner is a little crunchy yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's about as far as i could get and yeah. then you got these guys that have been driving for 30 years they can they know what nut is loose yeah. Uh, for an or for a corner and say, oh, it's the kingpin or something else that's going on over there. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that 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 they can kind of pinpoint and give the opportunity to give the crew guy some very specific instructions with it. Yeah, you talked earlier a little bit. Uh, you touched on you 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 started as a drag race. So we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah. But I want to talk about your record: a hundred. A hundred point three one miles per hour. So for our yeah. for our Aussie listeners, that's a hundred. That's over one hundred and sixty kilometers an hour over the quarter mile in a monster truck. Now that is phenomenal. That was a, a Bradenton uh, International in Florida. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bradenton Motorsports Park. We did it. At. Yep. Yep. So yeah, lots of lots of um, uh, what do you call them? We call them door slammers. You call them pro mods, pro home of yeah, pro, pro mods. mods. Uh-huh. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that because I saw that video and to me, I, it doesn't look comfortable at the top end. <laughs> yeah, it, it it tried to. It's amazing because obviously a, a truck that big, it's trying to vibrate itself apart in that on at that kind of speed because it's not built for speed, right? Yeah. It's built for jumping up and forty feet in the air and coming down relatively softly. Um, and so that was our big question is because no one had been triple digits before mile an hour wise. Mm. Um, and so we looked at it and said, okay, if we're going to try to take this 100.3 miles an hour, a hundred miles an hour, you know, no one's been that fast. And then I came over the radio and said, yeah, but no one's crashed one of these at a hundred miles an hour either. So, mm. you know, what, what's this going to look like even unloading the the weight of the truck after the finish line, there's all these, these elements that we said, we don't know what the truck's going to do. So we had to have a plan to kind of, you know, softly let off the throttle even after the finish line, just because I kept dropping my foot off the the throttle as soon as I go through the, the speed traps, you know, and, and it hike up the back of the truck and throw all the, you know, the, the 12,000 pounds forward onto the front nose. And so I, and it kind of got squirrely a couple of times. So all those elements were things that we just didn't know what to do. Our biggest struggle though, is that the state of Florida has just insane humidity Mm. 
And yep. any good car guy knows that, that, that humidity is a, just is the enemy of horsepower. Yep. And it was essentially rain numbers. So we had, a, I think it was 120 grains per square inch or whatever that is. So mm-hmm. it was basically saying it was raining outside. It was not, yep. it was just that humid in the state of Florida. And so we could not build any boost. We just, we were struggling to build real horsepower that day. Yep. And so we, I went back and I sat in the trailer with my motor guy, with our motor uh, builder. And we started looking at all the data and that took me back to my top fuel days. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent, I was 15 years old living in our trailer, looking, you know, looking at these, uh, these computer screens and all the race pack data and just studying all of that. And, uh, yep. and so when I sat there with our motor guy, he was kind of like, well, you, you know what you're looking at on, on this stuff? I'm like, yeah, I know. Let's, let's, let's look at this. But I had to learn all the different sensors and we didn't have near the sensors to, on these monster jam trucks as we did on the, uh, the top fuel car, of course. But we, we, we looked at all the data and we got a plan. And basically what was happening is as soon as I was shifting into second, the, the boost would just, you know, it would, it would kind of plateau and, and fall, but it would, it would die off. And the, the longer I held first gear, so we get, did a couple of test passes and they were telling me, Monster Jam was coming up and saying, hey, you need to do this and shift here and go. Because they had a plan. You know, they had done yeah. all the, the science on it. And we weren't breaking the record. I think we were only going 97 miles an hour. The record at that time, I think, was 98.9 or something. Um, and I kept I kept telling them, I mean, I was doing what they wanted me to do. And finally, they were like, hey, Bryce, we're, we're not we're not hitting this record and it's go time. Uh, what, what do we need? To, what do you think? I said, you guys need to let me drive this truck. Yeah. I said, get, stop telling me what to do. I, I feel it. We're waiting way too long to, to shift and we're not building enough power. And, um, and so I go out there and I just run it the way I wanted to run it as a driver. We break the record. So we ran like 99.1 miles an hour and we officially broke the record, but the goal was a hundred, right? We wanted to hit triple digits. And that's when I went back to the, with the motor builder and said, okay, what can we do? And so I obliterated first gear. Like my plan was to say, let me get every ounce of first gear before a shift into second, because we just run the 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 a power glide transmission on these these trucks, and before I shift into second, and then it and it'll hold, and hopefully it'll it'll set and kind of let us motor down the track and build enough boost uh, going through the speed traps. Yeah, okay. uh, and and that's exactly what happened. So I was so aggressive on first gear that when I shifted to second, it let the motor kind of stand up on itself a little better and motored on down and we hit hundred miles an hour. So everyone celebrated and it was not a testament of like me being smart. It was honestly all the prep work that went into that run and the guys back at the shop, making sure everything was tried and true and making mm-hmm. sure to, we limited as much vibration as we could. That's yep. the only reason we were able to pull that stuff off, yeah. uh, but it was a good team effort. And it was a lot of people saying, Hey, why don't we, sometimes you got to throw the science book away. Mm. And just let, you know, and, or, or maybe not throw it away, but combine it with a driver that, that feels something that feels like, you know, Hey, let, the data is good, but I feel something that the, that the, you know, race pack is supporting. Let's mm. try something that I want to do, not just what the plan is based on the gearing that we've got in the truck. So yeah. all that being said, it was a huge win for everybody. It was so cool to be in the Guinness world record book. 
Mm. You know, that's not something I'd ever dreamed of. The first time I flipped through the 2022 Guinness World Record book and right there, it's Bryce Kenny from, you know, North Carolina in the United States with the speed record of 100.3 miles an hour. It was such a surreal moment and it was cool to kind of be there to share that moment with my wife and be there to share that moment with my kids who thought it was super cool because dad's still cool right now. I don't know how long the kids will think dad is cool, (laughs) but right now. That that was a that was a dad cool moment for me. <laughs> yeah, no, and it is. I I uh, I saw that and I thought, oh, that is, that is impressive. When I watched the video, that was really impressive because, as I said, it looks it looked angry at the top end and it doesn't look like the most easiest thing to pull up. So I can <laughs> it would have been quite 160 kilometers an hour. That's that's motoring. So yeah, is, yeah, especially for something that it felt a lot fat. You know, I've been I've been 300 miles an hour in, in yeah. our top fuel car years back, and so I know speed. And I, you know, I, I don't know what 160 kilometers would be at 170 miles an hour, but that's what I've always said. A hundred miles an hour in a monster jam truck felt like about 170 miles an hour yeah. um, in, in anything else. And it just mm. felt really very fast and, and very violent. So I'm glad yeah. it, it stayed together. I'm glad I didn't crash it on the top end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, definitely. I was talking about uh, not crashing that the save of the year. You won save of the year in 2019. Mm. That is an awesome save. I've watched that. I need to know. So, when the truck's spinning around like that on the side of the wheels, how much peripheral <laughs> vision do you actually have, and how much positional awareness do you have of where you are at that at that moment? Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I that moment was still to this day one of my highlights, uh, and it happened back in I want to say it was twenty nineteen uh, in Houston, yeah. in Texas. Yeah, and I I've always explained. And I learned this actually in the top fuel stuff as well. It blows my mind how quickly the human mind can make decisions. Mm. And without us like having to consciously say, okay, put my foot here or turn the steering wheel here. You just know it, right? You got that muscle memory. But even after a normal run, I will think back and go, man, there was so many, or I'll watch a video of my onboard stuff and what my hands are doing. And I'm like, I don't even remember my hand dropping over here and going going on that and and doing this decision. I, I I think we're making hundreds of decisions in a two minute freestyle run in Monster mm-hmm. Jam, and in that moment, you talk about that specific save. It really all boils down to uh, uh, your mind split second decisions one after the next to all add up into something that really really was able to be pulled off. You couldn't consciously think, okay, if I do this and go there and and have this, uh, then then all of a sudden it'll it'll work out. Uh, you just got to rely on muscle memory. And so I'm always blown away at what the human mind can do. Uh, but I remember thinking as I was, as I was coming off of the, the pad, right? So we've got this, this um, dirt pile right in the middle of the floor. I hit a big transfer and came down to hit the, the, the top of that pad. And I knew yeah. I was going to come off crooked. And so I was trying to throttle off of the pad to keep momentum. In a Monster Jam truck, momentum is your friend. Anything mm-hmm. you can do to maintain momentum, to keep momentum, even if you're cartwheeling the truck, you've got a better chance of landing it, of pulling it out of that crash. Yeah. And so as soon as I started twirling, though, I, I realized, well, that didn't work. Um, and all my my goal was just to, to not get too disoriented and to find the dirt. Because mm-hmm. to your point, you know, you're so strapped, you don't really have peripheral vision. All you're trying to do is figure everything looks like dirt. You know, mm-hmm. nothing looks looks normal and so you're just trying to turn the truck into the dirt wherever you're at well you've got about 
you know, 0.1 seconds to, to be able to, to pull that off. And so when the truck had, it did a cartwheel, it kind of fell over. It landed on the side tire side of the tires, the sidewalls. And thankfully I was able to, to turn the front tires into the dirt. I gave it all the throttle I had. Oh, yeah. The truck started spinning on his <laughs> sidewalls, but what I did not plan for was that there was a dirt pile, one of the big jumps that came up and I bounced the truck off of that dirt pile. That was the really special moment for me yeah. uh, because I couldn't have planned that. It bounced off perfectly and it actually enabled the truck to correct itself and come back on all fours. Yeah. Um, and that was just one of those moments where the crowd went crazy, but I'm a little bitter because I did not win freestyle that night mm, with okay. that move. I did not win freestyle <laughs> Jim Kohler in Avenger. Who's been driving Avenger, for 30 years. Yeah. And if there was anyone, if there was anyone that I would have rather won freestyle, it would have been Jim uh, that night, but I could not believe that I, I missed it by like 0.1 of a point or something like that, yeah. that the fans all judge me on. So that I'm still a little bitter about that, but man, we, that, that move and that, that moment is still easily one of my, one of my yeah. best moments. And I've always said this, Nick in monster jam, sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you're good. Mm. The best moments are when you're both. That's and that right. night we were, we were lucky and good. So it worked okay. out. <laughs> Bryce, talk us through then a couple of years later, 2021, uh, you won the Outreach Award in 20. Can you talk our listeners through that? Yeah. I uh, I know that I won't be able to do this forever. I know that I won't have this platform forever. Mm. And so in my mind, I've always said, hey, what can we do to leverage this platform to really help other people, right? And, and yep. I think anyone would want to do that. But I think most of us just don't know always really how to help other people. And so I started a foundation called Live Like Warriors. Mm. And what we do is we crowdfund and we raise money for very specific needs as they arise. And, and I love doing it for two reasons. First of all, we help people and actually fill needs that people need, right? So when people give, if people give 20 bucks to something that I'm raising money for, all that money goes to what we're raising for, right? No yep. one's, you know, I don't have a salary or I'm not charging people. I'm not even paying for printer ink um, out of all of that stuff. And so, uh, but when, when we switch over to filling that need, yes, we fill needs. But number two, it's getting people off the sidelines and it's helping them realize that they can do a lot more than they thought they could. Yeah. And so for us to be able to step out there and do that, it's getting more people off the sidelines and into the game um, mm. to to be able to, uh, to to realize that, man, maybe it's good if I help give 20 bucks to something, but it's even better if maybe I realize that my neighbor can't fill up their gas tank uh, uh, next week and I go buy them a, a – a, a gift card or something like that to help out a neighbor. And that's all of a sudden that's going to elevate our community. So yep. live like warriors is a volunteer army mm -hmm. where we go out and make a coordinated effort to fill very specific needs in our, in our world. Yep. And uh, I'm having a blast doing that. And we've had a great response from everybody to, that wants to be a part of it. Yeah. No, that's awesome work you're doing. It is awesome work. Let's just take a little bit of a step back here. You talked to you originally, you mentioned North Carolina. You you grew up in High Point, North Carolina. From from my point of view and from many Australians' point of view, it seems to me that North Carolina is the epicenter of motorsport in the world, really. It's, yeah. It seems to be, you know, it's the, the, the traditional home of NASCAR. 
and a lot of motorsport teams in the US are based out of North Carolina. Can you talk us through what it's like growing up in North Carolina? Because I've always wanted <laughs> wanted to go there and and uh, and and to see North Carolina. It's interesting that you say that too, because I, you know, I think people here in the states would agree that you know North Carolina is a hub. I'm I'm happy to know that even internationally, it's known yeah. as that. That's pretty cool. Uh, I, it's funny. I've still to this day, never been to a NASCAR race. Yeah. Is that criminal? Is that absolutely uh, criminal? Cool. <laughs> because I've grown up in North Carolina, that might be criminal. Um, and I've been a motorsports guy my whole life, but what's cool is, yeah. I mean, there's, Oh, is it Kevin Harvick? And it's not Kevin Harvick. It's Clint Boyer. Clint Boyer, his family farm is 30 minutes from my house where I'm at yeah. right now. You mm -hmm. know, I'm an hour from all the big race shops. Uh, my buddy who used to drive grave digger, he got me involved in monster jam. His name's Morgan Kane. Mm, um, yes. He's been to, I think he's come to Australia and such. Now he's with Penske racing. So yeah. he's a, he's a big hot shot now in their sponsorship side at Penske. And he lives again, an hour up the road from me. So it is, it's the epicenter. And for, yeah. for us, it's so wild because there is a culture here. You know, you talk about car shows. Uh, I don't know if you guys have cars and coffee in yeah, Australia. Yeah, we do. Okay. Yep. Yep. So cars and coffee, all that stuff is huge. I did. That's what I did with Live Like Warriors, my, not my nonprofit a month ago, is I did a huge cars and coffee event. And we had over 600 cars show oh, up. Wow. And it was a big pediatric cancer fundraiser. But that's because of the car culture that's mm -hmm. here. And you, I, I mean, I had a, we had a 49 Jaguar that was originally built for the King of Belgium. That was at my, my uh, cars and coffee event. And it was, it should have been in a museum. It was the second serial code of a, of a uh, left-handed driving car yeah. uh, in the world ever to be built by Jaguar. The the first one is in a museum in Ling, in, in England. And this guy had the second and he's just driving it around. It should be like roped off. It wasn't, it was just in a normal parking spot next to some rust bucket um, out there. And so, but that's what the, that's what is so cool about North Carolina is you've got cars, uh, you know, new stuff, old stuff, hot rods, beaters, rat rods, you know, out in my garage. I've got, you know, my daily driver is not very cool. It's a 2011 suburban because I've got yeah. three kids. So it's a dad mobile. But, but in my shop, I've got a 1970 Mustang and mm -hmm. right next to a 1942 Dodge rat rod. And yeah. I'm not odd. It's not odd that that's, those are in my garage uh, because I'm in, I'm here in North Carolina. So that's, what's really cool. It, it permeates everything mm. and you're, you, you can't throw a rock without being able to hit a household here in North Carolina that happens to just, they love motorsports and a lot of people are going to love NASCAR as well, but I know it's criminal. I've still to this day not been to a NASCAR race. I need to fix that. <laughs> you should have. I mean, NASCAR, it, it goes through its followings here in Australia. It's interesting. We've had a number of Australians take it on. We had Marcus Ambrose many years ago, and now we've got uh, Shane Van Gisbergen, even though he's from New Zealand, we claim him as our own, and Brody Kostecki <laughs> next year doing a few NASCAR events. So we have this ebb and flow of NASCAR here in Australia where mm. we'll have a, a, an elevated interest when an Australian's participating in it over there. So uh, oh. we, we love well, watching. We love we love NASCAR from from. Are those guys that are making it from Australia into NASCAR or New Zealand and such, are they – because this is the big debate across all motorsports where it's like, are they bringing money with them? Are they bringing sponsorship with them? Because nowadays it's hard. You're looking at that and saying most of the people getting rides, it's because they've got wealthy family members or something and they can bring, you know, a couple million dollars to the table. 
how are those guys able to get noticed enough to be able to go over there and make it? Well, the, the, the talent is really for Shane Van Gisbergen. There's no doubt there's talent, but I'm sure he's bringing money or he's he's been able to uh, get sponsors uh, to back yeah. him to 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 go there as well. But for Shane Van Gisbergen and uh, in particular Brody Kostecki as well, Brody Kostecki, uh, his team over here in Australia is owned by uh, a lady called Betty Klaminko. Betty Klaminko owns a number of shopping centers here in Australia, Australia-wide, and um, has the funding to to do a few NASCAR races next year. So, um, yeah, they, that's that's how they're doing it. So, But mm. talent as well. It, it's sort of the two coming together. Yeah, and that's what, yeah. that to me is what makes Monster Jam so unique in the sense of um, Monster Jam is – you know, when I came to the table, it was just, you know, they, they own everything. They own the trucks and the drivers and the crew guys and everything. So they're mm-hmm. able to control it. I do think that a lot of motorsports have to start making that shift into thinking about the brand, not on a number on the side of a car and not even, I think a lot of motorsports are in trouble because sponsors, unless it's attached to an IP, like we did with great clips with yep. the Mohawk warrior truck, the Mohawk warrior truck was already an IP and it was built and it had a fan base. Hmm. I think it's a lot. It's really hard for for drivers that are out there beating their heads against the wall trying to find sponsorship dollars. This is what I did with Top Fuel, and it didn't work. Of yeah. trying to go to a company and say, "Hey, if you give us three million dollars, we'll be able to go and get you this type of exposure." It's not enough for exposure. It's hmm. how is a brand experience allowing their customers to experience their brand? And yeah. motorsports is one of the most unique ways to do it. It should not be this difficult. For us as a culture, as a motorsports world, to find sponsorships, mm. but it is, and it's getting harder and harder and harder because the return on investment just has not been there. Yeah. And in my opinion, it's because we're not, as a culture, we're not thinking strategically enough about how the fans are experiencing a brand or experiencing our team or experiencing our car yeah. um, and how that's going to ultimately end up in sales and mm-hmm. marketing and and which would turn into more sponsorship dollars. I think there's a radical change that needs to happen in motorsports that um, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping Monster Jam is a litmus test for to show it. But mm. ultimately, yeah, how do you turn NASCAR into, how do you turn a NASCAR car into some themed vehicle? You know, yeah. I don't know that that's the the answer if you call it the beast. And yeah. all of a sudden now, this, you know, Monster Energy wants to come on board because they've got the beast that that is promoted. But someone out there is going to crack the code. And we need to do it for the longevity of the sport. Otherwise, yeah. Formula One is going to be the only answer. And Netflix is going to, you know, unless you get a Netflix deal or or some streaming deal, that's, that's got, that's, I know that's the golden goose for all of us. And mm. I'm trying to build that kind of value, but we can, we don't have to wait for Netflix or Amazon to be able to put us on, on that type of opportunity. Like we can go and build that through social media, through yeah. YouTube. We can create that, and if someone's out there, again, trying to crack that code, start building that type of content, let it grow into something. And if you if you build that kind of content that's almost like an IP or a brand in and of itself, sponsors want to attach themselves to brands now, not mm. be, the, be the only brand themselves on a race car. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, we've seen that shift starting, just recently starting to happen. We have a series here called V8 Supercars, or Supercars, sorry, and we've mm. seen a number of teams – uh, create their own content. So what I mean by that is we there's a team called Tickford. They're the Ford team here in Australia. 
and they've started producing their own content, uh, snackable content, we call it here. So it's a they do a five-minute YouTube video, and it's it's quite humorous. So they're, they're starting to engage, but this is only very recent. Like up until last year, two years ago, the snackable mm. content was limited to to very very little in Australia in terms of motorsport. So uh, mm. we will see more of that, and you know, in particular, we, I want to see more of it from drag racing as well in Australia because that's where I think drag racing, uh, I think it can be more engaging to a broader base of fans. To be honest, that's that one. That's just my view, anyway. Yeah, well, and if you have, you know, I mean, think about the way the guys built the drag racing world back in the 70s and 80s. You know, you think about John Force and you think about Don Garlitz and uh, Don Schumacher. Those guys, they all had, you know, John Force had brute force. You know, that was mm. that was his funny car that he ran for years. Like those guys had themed it. Yeah. Um, and and you know, and and all of us love Dukes of Hazard. You know, mm. we love the the uh uh, General Lee car. Well, that General mm-hmm. Lee car was a theme. Like, I mean, yep. so I think we've gotten so far away from it because we watched John Force take brute force off the side of his themed car mm. and 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 put Wendy's on it. You know, when yeah. he got a Wendy's deal and all the 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 food company and that, and then he got Castrol uh, mm. oil for for thirty years. But the point being, and if I was John Force, that's not a you know certainly not a knock against him. He's one of my endorsements for Geared for Life, by yeah, the way. Yeah, um, he's on the back cover of it. But um, I I am amazed at what we've been able to do. We need to get back to what actually built the sport, which was a culture, and cultures can only get created around personalities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't think we give cars themselves, and in my case, trucks. We, we don't give them personalities enough, and then we wonder why we're not getting enough traction, no pun intended, mm. on uh, on the marketing side. It's because there's no culture attached to our team. And mm. and that's what I learned coming back. That's why I, when I failed in, in drag racing, that's the biggest thing I learned. It yeah. wasn't about me just walking into a company trying to pitch them on marketing dollars to bring them into the sport to, to put their name on the side of my race car. It's because I... I personally may have had a great personality. I don't know. Maybe I had a bad personality. That's why I couldn't land it. <laughs> but, but ultimately, it was about creating a culture, and my team did not have that. My what Monster Jam does better than anyone else in the world is just that. There is mm-hmm. a culture around Grave Digger that yeah. fans attach themselves to. There is a culture around my truck, around Mohawk Warrior, mm-hmm. and thankfully, we were able to allow Great Clips to attach to that existing culture. Yeah, you know, a Mohawk and kind of you know, a little bit edgy of a, of a truck. And it looks, it looks cool. You know, my favorite thing to do with fans is the warrior face. I call mm. it, you know, getting them to, ah, getting them to look like they're yelling at somebody, <laughs> you know, those, those pictures, the fans love it. Yeah. So again, if someone's out there really trying to to beat their head against the wall, thinking, think in terms of that way, how mm. can I, and, and I think that's going to solve a lot of people's heartache around, man, I, I would start building YouTube content or snackable content, like you're saying, but I don't yeah. know what to do. It's like turn the camera on and just let the personality of your team start to show through. Yeah. It's going to take a while to build, but it's you got to start somewhere. Turn the camera on, see what happens. Yeah, yeah, no, no, most definitely. Just one other thing I want to touch on, like because you grew up in North Carolina, but what was it like having a passion for soccer? Because you were you were quite good at soccer, and and. I've I just recently watched the Beckham uh, documentary, and I I never yeah. really understood 
the following that soccer had in the United States until I watched this documentary. And what I'm not saying David Beckham bought the 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 sport to the foreground in in the United States. I think it's always been there, but I didn't realize how big it was. Talk us through those those early years and your passion for soccer. Yeah, and, and I will I will be the first to call it football as well. So you won't offend me by calling it that. Um, in fact, it I think soccer the the word soccer is the reason why people here in the states don't like soccer is because yeah. that's such a stupid name. Like think yeah, about is. how stupid it is, soccer. Like how it doesn't sound good, feel good coming off your lips or anything. Um, so I truly hate it. And uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it, it's a very so at the youth level, youth soccer is huge youth mm. football is huge and uh there's a lot of people that come up my my son plays it right now my daughter yeah. tried it didn't like it but so 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 she moved on but i i love coaching it now uh but man i loved competing and mm. it, whether it was in in any sport i just loved to compete yeah. and so i went and got to play at at the university here in the states and that was a that was next level that unfortunately was just a business mm. and so i didn't enjoy that quite as much ended up getting injured my sophomore year at the very end of it and yeah. i had some good moments there but i i loved what it built in me but i, I i'll tell you this nick what was what's interesting because psychologically and and i wonder if people listening have had this happen where they all of a sudden have a moment where they don't you know, they're not like the guy anymore. I was always the guy in high school, mm. right? High school ball. I was always the guy and I was, I was good. And if I wasn't good enough, I'd get better. Right. And so I was always fighting. I was always practicing and, and investing into being better and winning. So then you get to university and it's next level and it's, it's a business. It's all about wins and losses. It's not yep. about you as a person, as a player, and uh, I remember not starting my freshman year. That was really hard, but mm. you're still a freshman. It's your first year. Uh, you're not supposed to start, but the guy ahead of me was just one year ahead of me. So it felt like we were equal. It wasn't like I was a freshman and he was a senior. And I remember all of a sudden developing this second string mentality that I took after I got injured and took into the real world, almost like I'm not supposed to be first string in a way. And we don't realize that we do this this way. Sometimes we get into a corporate America, we get into our jobs and our careers and we just almost assume that someone else is going to go and run the ball down the field. Yep. And, and I just, and you're always the assist guy, but you're never scoring the goal to, to use an analogy. And I had to get that out of my mind. And I want to say five or six years ago is when I finally caught it. And I, I realized that that mentality that sneaks up in me and it still does today i had to fight it off yesterday with something and and it'll still sneak up with me because i never experienced what it looks like to be a bench player until mm. i went to the university but we do that in our careers and we got to stop doing that like we've got to be the guy we have to be the one taking the 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 penalty right we yeah. have to be the one we want to be that one in our careers and what we're doing and striving for and if we're not good enough to be that guy, to have the game on our shoulders and take the penalty, we need to get better. We need to improve. Mm -hmm. We need to work on it. And and that's what I, I catch myself constantly doing. So um, I loved playing any and all athletics and sports and stuff and soccer or football um, and and uh, the stuff that it builds in you and, and realizing how to handle adversity and how to handle the wins and handle the losses. But that was, that's what I love the most. And I did, I love the Beckham documentary. I didn't, at first, I wasn't sure what to expect, hmm. but, and, and honestly, Victoria Beckham, I didn't realize that she was so, it's like you respect her because she's so 
you know, she is her own person and yeah. in a way she's unapologetic about it, but man, she was so irritating in that documentary as well. So, <laughs> so I don't know what that was all about, but, but, uh, what a life they, they, they get to live. Yeah. And I was watching that with a business mind and I was, I was watching how they were able to monetize things and, yeah. you know, it takes a long time to be able to monetize your passion and mm -hmm. it was for them too. But I think, yeah, I think the the culture here in the States, Beckham poured gasoline on the fire of it. Now that Messi has come over and yeah. and started with with uh, FC Miami, that is a game changer. But what was crazy is I, I saw a picture the other day, and it was a kid I coached that was going into a tackle with Messi. So he plays for FC Charlotte, uh, and I say I coached him. Uh, he was on the team I coached. And, and so he goes <laughs> into this him. tackle – with Messi, and that's the picture. And I'm going, man, there's Brant Bronico right there against Lionel Messi. And, you know, that it, it just – it it's going to continue to grow here in the States, just the culture as a whole. Yep. But we've got to get better. You know, mm. you saw in the documentary, he was kind of like – he didn't realize that the soccer here in the States was so bad. Mm. And it's because we, we're great at building athletes here in the States, but we don't have the system to support the growth in yep. soccer – here in the States that everyone else does because of the university system and everything mm -hmm. else. And we have endless opportunities here in the States to do whatever sport we want to do. So we're actually not even getting the best athletes in, in soccer because it's not paying the way the national football league pays and the NBA pays. So yeah. I think we're a ways away, but the culture is continuing to improve that way. Yeah. We hope you're liking this podcast. If you are head to our iTunes or Spotify, um, podcast channel and like and subscribe to us there also head to our website tnpmedia.au you can get all of our episodes every single one we've ever recorded from our website there as well there's also a heap of youtube content so head to our youtube channel and subscribe to us there that's talking power wherever you get us make sure you like and subscribe us there uh, we can really do with the, uh, the subs thanks everyone now back to the second half of the podcast. But before we get stuck into the book, because I really want to talk about the book as well. One one last thing about your growing up and your career. You talked about being you, you raced top fuel. I, mm. I'd, I'm trying to think here in Australia. I don't know of anyone that set the track record in licensing. <laughs> you would have to be <laughs> yeah. the first person that I know who set the track record while licensing. That's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty cool. That was at Clay City in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, it's that's and it's actually the track I grew up on. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, all week long I'd go up as, as soon as school would get out for summer break, I'd go up and I'd be weed eating the fence line. My grandfather owned it, and uh, and on the weekends when I was eight, I'd I'd run our little junior dragster, and I loved it, man. It was a man's paradise, and it was so much fun. But yeah, so my heart was at that track, and so when we went to go license. And I had to get all my eighth mile passes in. That's where we went was to Clay City. We knew the track. We knew everything about it. And we grew up on it. And so, and we didn't own it uh, anymore at that point either. And because my grandfather, uh, he sold the track when I was 13 and bought a top fuel car. And so that's yep. when we went top fuel racing. And and I love the mechanical side of it as well. And, you know, I was our clutch specialist at 15 years old, which still is oh, crazy wow. that I was entrusted that's, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was a cylinder head guy at 17, 18. So I knew the car through and through. That's what enabled me to to do okay when I got in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. But it was cool to go out there and set the track record that night in the eighth mile for the track I grew up on. And just having that moment with my grandfather 
Yeah, and I remember him leaning. Yeah, he leaned down into the cockpit after we got it back to the pit area and parked, and he jammed his finger into my chest and said, "Buddy, I'm so proud of you." Yeah. And what was hard was he was the one that had the track record before me, so it was cool because I got to. He it was like he passed the torch to me. Yeah. Um, but also I, I hated it that I, I beat his, his track record. It's still the track record, at, uh, to this day, it's Kentucky dragway now. And my uncle bought the track back, uh, five or six years ago. So now it's back in my family's hands oh, wow. and doing great, but I still have the track record at, at Kentucky dragway, which yeah. is pretty cool. But that, that memory with my grandfather is one of my favorites. Yeah, that, that would be. And I can understand that. I completely understand that. If anyone's listening, let us know. If someone, if they know of someone that's actually broken the track record while licensing, I'd love to hear from them. Because that's I'm an not, interesting, I'm, yeah. That's yeah, an I'm, interesting I'm, stat. Yeah. <laughs> and and kudos to you for for noticing that as well. <laughs> you yeah. know, most people wouldn't have uh, yeah, paid no. that close attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get stuck into the book anyway. Um, One of the... You talk, you refer to the seven gears of life, um, and how important, just like in a monster truck, you said it before, you got to keep the momentum rolling on, you got to keep the momentum going. Give us, like, when we're faced with uncertainty, how do we avoid getting stuck in neutral? Like, because that's that's something that you know, I think, I think every single human faces that at some at some time. So, talk, talk us through. Like, um, how do we, how do we stop or avoid getting stuck in neutral? Well, I think that all of us have been in that moment in life where like our head hits the pillow at night and we're thinking mm. to ourselves, is this really it? Like, is this all, you know, you know, all of a sudden you're 35 in, in, in your career and you're going, man, I thought, I thought life would be better. Yeah. Uh, or I, this didn't turn out the way I thought, or maybe it's a 65 year old that just retired and they're kind of like, I thought retirement would be better than this, whatever mm. it might be. We all hit that moment where we're just going, man, there's got to be more than this. And that's, I think that is the exact moment of being stuck Yeah, because we feel stuck and we're like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't, I, I, I thought it would be better. And I don't really know how to change it because I'm in too deep. And to me, that's what I'm passionate about doing. That's what I'm really good at doing, by the way, I've become an expert in just finding my next gear. And so if I'm stuck in neutral and neutral really looks like that, it's that it's a pattern of doing the same thing over and over, but you're not going anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. you can rev up your motor as much as you want. And a lot of people revving up their engine and they're stuck in neutral because they're not really uh, progressing in life and moving where they want to go. And, you know, the, they rev up the engine on the weekends when they go and, you know, uh, drink alcohol and, you know, get, get slammed on Friday or Saturday night and, yeah. and, uh, and then try to get their life back together for Monday. That was just them revving up the engine, I guess. But, uh, and, and we've all been there, but mm. for me, I think that if we simplify where we want to go and, and how we're going to get there, uh, then everything becomes a lot more tangible. And I'll use a car analogy for that. And that's what this book is really the, the essence of this book is our lives are just like a transmission where people are sucking neutral. Maybe we can get them back into acting and, and building towards the life that they really want to live. And yeah. so they kind of allow them to shift into first gear. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times I've met most people that they've been in first gear for 30 years. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, and now all of a sudden they've wondered like, well, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do more. Bryce, are you telling me to work harder and to do more? I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have exhausted the gear you're in. You need to shift and go into the next gear. 
Mm-hmm. And just like if you're getting onto the highway, you know, and you start off and you turn onto the, the acceleration ramp onto the on ramp, you're in first gear. Well, that car is going to shift at 4,000 RPM. Yep. Well, you've, you've been in first gear for 30 years. You've been at 7,500 RPM for a long time. No wonder you feel like the you're about to blow up and the motor's mm-hmm. about to blow up, you know? And so you just got to go to second. The other problem is a lot of people try to shift from first to fifth gear. Yeah. And that's not how transmissions work. You've got to go through the stages. You've got to go through your gears one at a time to understand how to eventually run at your top speed. And so what I've become an expert at is I'll get, you know, I can shift and go up to fifth gear, get all the momentum I I can and want to on the on the interstate, on the highway. And then when I take that next exit and I'm up and, and all of a sudden I'm turning off the road of life and there's a mountain path with potholes and and stones to crawl over, guess what? You got to shift it back down into first. Mm. And so finding the right gear at the right time is the same way life operates, but most people do not understand what their gears are. And that's what this book is going to help someone do because it's going to help you understand, look, you believe more than you, than you realize you believe, you know, it can be very simple. Okay. Because yes, I I believe everyone needs to decide if there's a God or not. Right. But that's not what the book's about. That's very deep. That's very theological. Mm. It could just be simple, like, you know, are should animals be protected? You know, I don't know. It could be very simple. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I believe animals are should be protected. Well, if you believe that, you're probably not holding dog fights uh on Friday nights in your backyard. So mm-hmm. our beliefs and what we believe, they guide our actions. And they can be so simple. <clears throat> Excuse me. They can be so truly simple. Uh, they don't have to be as complex just to get people started. But once they understand that they have more core beliefs than they realize, it'll start to shape their actions. And then their actions start to shape their life into what they're wanting to do. But we've got to simplify it and saying, look, it's not about being the best version of yourself today. It's not about shifting into your highest gear right now. It's about just simply shifting into your next gear. That'll take the pressure off of you and you can actually start building that momentum that you need Mm -hmm. in life again. Yep. So how do how do we know? So how how do we know when that shift is actually needed in life? And when, and I guess how come some people get stuck as well? I think that burnout is very real. I think that all of us get exhausted, and all, all of us you know have so much demand on our life, and yep. we're so focused on what we're doing or what we're not doing enough of. And I'm a big believer that the very first step and getting unstuck is shifting your focus away from the what you're doing or what you're not doing enough of and and remember who you want to become Mm. like i everyone talks about the big thing that you know oh know your why find your why why do you do this why do you i'm a big believer it's not even as much about the why as it is the who like i know who i want to become and so then the what i want to do to support who I want to become becomes easier and it makes my decision process easier. I want to be someone who uses the platform of motorsports to impact the world. Mm. And that's the best version of Bryce Kenny. And yeah. I that I know who I want to be and I want to be someone who is a great dad, right? I want to be someone who is a supportive and a, and a good husband, a loving husband to my wife. So if that's if I have a crystal clear picture of who I want to be, then it's easier for me when I come off the road and my son asks me to go play outside and go run the RC car around. It's easier for me to get my butt off the couch because I remember who I want to be instead of 
you know, what I don't want to do, which was get off the couch and go outside. <laughs> right? yeah. So it's easier to let the what fall in line with that. And so I'm a big believer that if people get back to understanding who they want to ultimately become by the time they leave this earth, who they, who, who, you know, and how people would describe them as they're, you know, at their funeral, I don't know, mm. whatever way that gets them excited to, to think about this, how, how their kids would describe them one day. When you understand that crystal clear picture of who you want to become, I think that that's the first step and the first perspective we need to start shifting and yep. it'll get you in gear into what, you know, a couple action changes that day to be able to, to, to shift towards becoming that best version of yourself. Mm. Okay. All right. Talk us through the bucket principle then, because you, you're talking, you capitalizing on moments of momentum can mean the difference between success and failure. Just talk mm. us through that. Cause that, that's a really interesting statement. That one. <laughs> Yeah. People always ask, you know, does it hurt to jump the monster jam truck? And I'm like, well, it can sometimes, but I call it the bucket principle because imagine standing on a five gallon bucket and you're just standing up there still and you step off of it and it's very jarring. Mm. Well, the momentum in a truck is when you're walking across, imagine that you're just going up and approaching that five gallon bucket in stride and you step on it and step off of it in stride. It's not jarring. It's, it doesn't yeah. have the same, same effect. And, and that is because you've got momentum. And so some of my worst crashes hurt the least in a monster yeah. jam truck because I, I was, I had a ton of momentum. So the truck kind of dissipated that energy and I didn't mm -hmm. feel it. And the truck kind of broke apart maybe. Um, and, and that's what you want. Well, that's the same way in life. So the hardest thing to do is to start anything. That's the most jarring. And a lot of people are standing on that five gallon bucket and they're afraid to step off because they, they know it's going to be jarring. Mm -hmm. But, uh, in, 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 uh, the, the other, the flip side of all of that is once you are going, and if you are in stride, those obstacles that you're going to come up on and the things that life keeps throwing your way, they're not going to be hard as hard to get over because you're just, you're hitting them in stride. So that's your goal. The goal yeah. should not be more activity. Right. You're, it's going to require more activity. I'm, I'm sorry to say hard work is tough. Stop mm. chasing happiness. Get your butt, get your butt moving again. Right. But your goal shouldn't be just doing more. Your goal should be momentum. And yeah. momentum is that it's just like in sports when that momentum swing happens for a team and you feel it. Right. And maybe, maybe in motorsports, like all of a sudden you feel like you've got momentum with sponsors and you're going, man, I'm coming up with all these marketing ideas. I can't lose with them. They're so good. And, you know, we're, we're, we, one plus one equals 11. It's not just one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one. You put the ones together and it, and it looks like 11. That's momentum. You can't lose, but momentum never lasts forever either. Mm, so yep. I would encourage anybody if they get become momentum focused, trying to build momentum where you create this machine that uh that enables you to really go and get those those maximum results that should be the goal and i talk a lot about that in the book about mm -hmm. how to build it what it looks like truly in our life and you know day to day and yeah. and how to sustain it cuz i personally nick i think the difference between a successful person and a not so successful person is just the successful person was able to find momentum and hold it longer than the not as successful person. That's yeah. it. I, I don't okay. think that that person is smarter, more, you know, uh, that, that, that did more worked more. If they worked more, it was because they worked more and built more momentum that was sustained longer than mm. the other guy. And that's my yeah. goal. And I think that's what everybody's goal should be. If they're truly trying to avoid that, that moment where they're like, is this it, you know, is yeah. this really all there is to life? 
build momentum and watch life start to change. Yeah, okay. All right. Talking, I'm sure the United States is has a lot of parallels with with Australia. Um, you know, I, I'm and in Australia we're seeing a lot of it, a lot of this this next thing, corporate burnout, and most people are feeling that in their day to day lives. Talk us through some some tactics to survive that, in, especially in the world that we're living in now, in particular. <laughs> I think corporate burnout is going to continue to get worse Mm -hmm. because we're being asked to do so much. And I don't know what the stats are nowadays. I know here in the States, it's almost required to have two and three jobs just to make it because of inflation and, and where the U.S. dollar is. And here we've got all these global conflicts getting ready to happen. And it life, I think our world is going to look a lot different 12 months from now than it does today. Mm -hmm. And so, Corporate burnout is going to be, if someone is not prepared for it, it's going to be really, really difficult for them to get through. But just like a car and 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 doing a proper burnout where you get those tires screeching and you break them loose at first and and, and the best smoky burnouts that we all love to see and all love to, to, to listen to, there's a lot of chaos going on in that. And controlling a burnout is really, really hard. But you've got to realize that I... I I take a little bit of encouragement when I do feel burnt out, knowing that like in drag racing, burnouts create that friction and lay that fresh, fresh rubber on the track for you to go out and be able to make the fastest pass possible. So Mm. there is purpose to the, the pain, right? There's purpose to the friction and it's building that friction and building that heat that can propel you into something truly great. But the second step to a, a, a great burnout is knowing when to kind of shift and go into that second gear instead of just wilding it out and blowing your motor up. Hmm. So I I believe that corporately in our jobs and what we're trying to go and create, if we know the who we want to be, then the burnout kind of helps to support that through there. But yeah. it's truly about looking at it and saying, hey, if you're going to spin your wheels forever, it's not going to last what can we do today to just create a quick win in our lives that enable to 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 uh, uh, build this moment and this moment of burnout to start getting better results and towards that finish line? And I I'm all for having a great vision, understanding where you want to go. I'm a, I'm a big supporter of that. But some people create this massive vision that they it stops them from actually acting towards what they want to create because they feel like they're so far away. The best thing anyone can do to get out of burnout is go back to the drawing board and say, what can I do today? Just the first action, as soon as my, my feet hit the floor, when I wake up that morning, what can I do one thing to get that win building towards that finish line that I've always dreamed of? And one, one success will lead to the next success. And that's how you just shift through those gears and knowing what gears you have to be able to go into. That's when you never get stuck. You know, I've got seven foundational principles, seven gears that are in my life. And I can tell you, Nick, I know when to shift into each one. That's why I don't stay burnt out. If I get burnt out, I don't stay burnt out because I simply shift into my purpose gear, right? There's times when I have to shift into and make a purpose decision rather than a monetary decision. Sometimes my teeth get kicked in and I've got to shift into becoming built for others, like working with my nonprofit. I got to shift into that gear and say, look, today's not about me. Today is about helping someone else and improve their their life. Well, that's a gear. And then sometimes I got to shift down here into the fail faster gear, which is, you know, hey, 
your successes are going to come, but you got to get through the failures first. So the faster you get through those failures, the quicker the successes come. Yeah. Well, that's a mindset. And I got to shift down into that gear too, whenever I'm trying to build something. So knowing what gears you've got and knowing when to shift into the right one, that's what's critical. That's what's going to get someone out of that burnout uh, faster than anything else that they could they could possibly do today to get close to that finish line and and finally build that life they've always wanted. Yeah. Bryce, tell me who, who taught you how to shift through these gears and these foundational beliefs? My grandfather, yep. my grandfather, my grandfather was such an incredible mentor for me and he didn't know, you know, he never really used the, the gearing verbiage, mm. but I watched him do it because I had the, I had the pleasure of, you know, traveling the country with him growing up in when we were chasing our drag racing dreams. And I got to listen to him. I got to, to, to talk to him and hear his foundational beliefs. But I think the most valuable element to that relationship I had with my grandfather was watching him go through really hard things mm. and he came through them. Yeah. Like he made it. He, 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 none of it killed him. Right. None of it, none of it was so hard that he curled up in a fetal position at the end of the day. And he went through some incredibly difficult things. And so I, what that did for me is it empowered me knowing that as an adult, and I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago, that it empowered me to realize now as an adult, as a father, as a husband, as a professional, as a driver, that nothing's going to kill me and I can mm. get through it, right? Yes, I'll die one day, but none of these hardships are going to be so difficult that I can't yeah. make it through on the other end. And so you start to believe rather than doubt that the light's going to be at the end of the tunnel, that there's that that no matter what I'm going through, I can make it through it. And so I constantly watched him shift into that gear. And, and there were times when he he shifted into being a, a chiropractor gear. He was a nationally known chiropractor. And then okay. there, he'd shift into being, you know, a, a driver and he'd shift into being just that, like helping and, and almost a counselor for people in drag racing because of his wisdom. Yeah. And, and I saw him shift into those different gears. And that's really what taught me. And Nick, I'll tell you that I understand that most people don't have that kind of mentorship uh, relationship in their yeah. childhood. Yeah. Most people didn't have, were not as fortunate as I was to have a grandfather like that or have a father. I got, I've got a great relationship with my dad, but I didn't, it wasn't the, that same mentorship uh, mm. relationship that I had with my grandfather. And I know that most people may not have that. I want this book to be exactly that for people. Yeah. They, maybe yeah. they didn't have that father figure, that grandfather figure geared for life is going to be that grandfather figure to them, that father figure to say, look, this is how you make it through these tough times. And by the way, I believe in you and yeah. you can do it. You can do hard things and you can actually go and achieve what you've always wanted to achieve and live that life you've always wanted and gear for life. I believe is going to be that for a lot of people. Yeah. Most, most certainly. Do you believe in the phrase then do what makes you happy? No. <laughs> so why is it too, Nick, that I feel like that's what we hear all the time. Don't we like celebrities yeah. It's, yeah. It, and it's the worst piece of advice ever. Do what makes you happy. Like cocaine makes people happy. <laughs> don't do cocaine. You know, I, I mean, when you look at and people are like, oh, well, the effects of that don't make you happy. Exactly. So why are people making decisions based on what makes them happy when happiness is fleeting? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I always like give this disclaimer. Unhappiness also should not be the goal. Yeah. But happiness is a byproduct of living a life of purpose, mm -hmm. of doing what you feel like 
you have to do. If you don't go and chase these dreams or follow this passion, you feel like you're going to explode, right? That guy, that person needs to be chasing that life of purpose. And, and people say, well, how do you find your purpose? I think finding our purpose, we've made way harder than it should be. Yeah. And uh, I, I believe if you e equip your passion, you'll find your purpose. Well, Bryce, I haven't been passionate about anything in, in quite some time. I can't answer that question. Okay. When was the last time you were passionate? Maybe you were nine years old. Go back to mm. that. Everyone, I've never met a soul that has never been passionate since they their heart started beating, yeah. right? There's been a, a moment where they were passionate. They need to go back to that passion and then start equipping it. Maybe it's welding. Mm. You know, maybe their passion is welding, but they're, they've never equipped that passion. If they go back and maybe they go back to school for, for it, or they get really good and they practice on it every waking moment they've got in the evenings, they're just practicing. They buy a well or they do all that stuff. If they equip their passion, that will turn into their purpose and they'll start to uncover that late at night and in your shop, you know, and you're practicing on that piece of metal. That's where all of a sudden you're going to go. What if I started building well, what if I started welding pieces together and sent them to children's hospitals to encourage yep. them about something like, or, or auction those pieces off to raise and help, you know, our local group here in, in, in my city, in my town, uh, to be able to, you see where I'm going with that. It's yeah. like when you equip your passion, it quickly turns into your purpose to where now all of a sudden you find meaning through what you're doing. And mm. that's the formula and people that are chasing happiness, they miss that because passion and happiness rarely go together. Yep. Some of my biggest heartaches have come out of my passion for being a driver, mm. right? Cause it's hard, yep. but that's not what keeps me going. My purpose keeps me going even when my circumstances change. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting point you raise there. And, uh, I'm hoping that our listeners are, are really taking that on board because that is a key you, you, you're right. And I hear so many people say it all the time, do what makes you happy. But do they do that? I wonder if people have thought to that level that you just explained there as well, because that's not necessarily, um, you know, the, 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 your passion and happiness are not, are not there together. Are they? Yeah. It's a lot of hard work yeah. to get your passion. And then if, if things go well, yep, that, that, that will bring you the happiness, but the happiness is only a short fraction of the time, isn't it? Yeah. The passion is, is a, is a, is a, is a labor and, it, it's 90% hard work, but yes. that's a lot of people have forgotten, haven't they? And hard, hard work, work doesn't bring a lot of times hard, hard work does not bring happiness. And that's what people are forgetting. You yeah. know, it, it doesn't, it, it, it might be the byproduct that we all need to, to exactly what you're saying, but man, screw your happiness. Right. Mm. And that sounds harsh, but maybe that'll stick into someone's brain. Like, again, the goal is not unhappiness, but you will be happier as a, a human being if yep. you have the courage to chase after your purpose. And mm. that's what all of our goals should really be. Yep. If we're going to get to the tombstone and, you know, get to the, get to the grave. And, uh, you know, I love the quote, it's not the two dates on your tombstone that matter. It's the dash in the middle. Yeah. So yep. go make your dash count mm. and chasing your happiness will not change a thing about that dash. Yeah. Only chasing your purpose is going to make that dash count. Mm, yeah, most certainly, most certainly. I guess one of the questions I have for you, and uh, you know, I guess what I want to ask is, what do you hope your audience or your readers take away from the book when they read Geared for Life? I I hope that they finally believe again 
mm-hmm. that they have what it takes to do something truly remarkable with your life, with their lives. Yeah. I hope that when, by the time they get to the, the back cover of geared for life, that they know exactly the steps they need to make today to start changing, to start going towards that finish line with the belief that they can build the momentum up to, to really make a life worth living. Right. Yeah. And so I, I'm excited because the feedback I'm already getting from people that have gone through geared for life, that's what they're taking away. They're stealing a few of my gears, you know, mm. which I, which I hope happens. And then they're also uncovering gears of their own, those foundational beliefs that are going to guide their actions for years to come. And now they say, you know what? I don't have to be, uh, you know, the, the best version of myself today, but I need to work towards it. And yep. this is what the best version of myself looks like. And all I'm going to do is start shifting one gear at a time until my life is over. And, and that's why they're going to go out there and make the fastest run path possible down mm-hmm. that track. And I'm going to yep. be on the sidelines, on the, on the fence line, cheering them on the whole way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. I, I, I think that's, that's a really, it's, um, a really great message that you've you've got for our listeners today. It really is. I guess one 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 of our final questions: What do you hope your legacy will be one day, Bryce? Mm. I hope my legacy will be just that same purpose and that same who I I mentioned before around somebody who impacted the world through the platform of motorsports, mm-hmm. and I hope that I leave it better than I found it. I hope that I'm not just a, 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 an agent of change, but that I'm somebody that passionately runs after making that dash count on the tombstone yeah. and, and understanding that the ripple effects of our lives, of my life, I hope continue to go on as far as they can because man, four, you know, what, what are you? We're, we're, we're three generations, really four generations away from no one really knowing who we are. So the only thing that we can leave behind are are being able to impact other people and their their families and their their uh, generations for years to come. And I want my legacy to be one where I leave everything better than I found. It. I leave my kids better than I found them. My wife better than I found her. I leave motorsports better than I found motorsports. And if I can do that and truly go and impact and make people's lives better then that's to me that's the recipe of greatness and yeah. i've got a lot of work to do though we got a lot of good things and a lot of people to go and help along the way but uh i i need help from other people doing it as well and we yeah. need that volunteer army i need a volunteer army of people that say hey they're raising their hand they're saying look i i want to make life count i want to make my impact i want to become my best version of myself as well mm-hmm. and when we create that man we're going to be an unstoppable force and here we're going to build a whole volunteer army right there in Australia as well. So yeah. anybody yep. listening, hey, go pick up Geared for Life and uh, you know go to my website, livelikewarriors.com, and and just start to 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 dream again, start to believe again that you've got what it takes to truly go out there and be great. And let's do this together. Yeah, yeah, most certainly, most certainly. Read the book. Now, speaking of the book, we can in Australia, you can get it from Amazon.com.au. It's also available at Dimix. So for our Australian listeners, Dimix are retailer through most of the uh, shopping centers here in Australia. So you can get the book there as well. So um, that was great to see, actually. Dimix have jumped on board here in Australia. They're they're a very reputable book company and uh, retailer, that is. And this day in the world we live in, book retailers are getting smaller and smaller, aren't they? But Dimix is actually quite 
have lasted the the distance here in Australia, and uh, that they, they, uh, their footprint is very good across across the country. So no, make good. sure people people get in there and grab the book. Bryce, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this, and I and I and I know our listeners. We have we have an army of of really. Um, dedicated listeners that listen episode after episode and then we also have people that sort of come and go i urge all of our listeners that listen all the time tell your friends listen to this episode it's quite inspirational and and i'm really glad that we got the opportunity to to talk with you i've been looking forward to this to be quite honest and uh i i think the message that you've brought to people uh i urge them to run out get that book geared for life um it, it it will make a difference in in a lot of people's lives and even if they can take away maybe just a couple of little things as well maybe they haven't quite mastered the shifting of all seven gears but they can maybe get a bit of inspiration to change a few i think it's 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 certainly worthwhile isn't it yeah i agree and and man what an honor you know if i get to be part of someone's journey someone's story oh. and this becomes a tool for them Man, that's that to me would be the biggest honor of my life, and uh, I just appreciate getting to share it with your listeners. I'm, I, I love this podcast. I think you do a great job, Nick, and uh, I'm, you, I'm very honored to to be on it. And man, hey, all of my Aussie friends out there, keep up the great work. Uh, we we love hearing about all the incredible things that go in go on in the motorsports world out there as well. And, yeah. and I keep a close tie to it. So hey, keep chasing your dream, keep at it, believe that really great things can happen, yeah. and uh, I'll be there cheering for all of you guys along the way. Thanks, Bryce. We really appreciate it. Geared for life, making the shift into your full potential. Get it at Dimmicks, get it at Amazon.com. Everyone everyone goes on Amazon.com.au here in Australia, yeah. <laughs> so there's no excuses. Or, or just walk down to Dimmicks, whatever. But yeah, get, get on to it. Bryce, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Nick.